This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. Sometimes bad news is actually good news. Now, none of us like bad news. We don't want to hear bad news. We don't sign up for bad news. But sometimes when the doctor gives us bad news or the coach gives us bad news, when they take, it to, take us to that place where we recognize, hey, I'm the problem or I have a problem or there's something I need to address, we have a choice to ignore it or to make a change. And if we make the change, the bad news can end up being good news because it got us to a new place. And the raw truth can seem unloving. But in reality, it's not loving at all to ignore the truth. Feelings will keep you where you are. Courage will speak to you and take you where you could be. It's interesting, our God is called the great physician. And Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, it's, it's kind of the human checkup, the reality of our condition. We're, we're having a, a spiritual, physical exam. And it's been some tough weeks. And the Holy Spirit through Paul writing to the church at Rome is saying some strong things. And there's this overarching theme that keeps being pounded through what Paul is writing that we have a problem and, and I am the problem. You are the problem. But often when we have a physical, the doctor knows that there are parts of the diagnosis that we're not going to like or or parts of the the treatment plan that we're not going to be crazy about. Part of the diagnosis is we are sinners. We are the problem. You, You thought you weren't broken. You are. And oh, those of you that thought you weren't in that group, you are. And the others of you that thought you weren't broken, you are. And the great physician, our great God, deals up front as we move into Romans chapter 3 with our objections to his diagnosis, the the pushback that you have in the office when the doctor says, here's the condition, and you start to question and you start to push back. He deals up front. He, He shatters the excuses and he removes the felt reasons, and he does it in such a precise way. He's given us the diagnosis, and we move into chapter 3. And the first objection we might have is, hey, church is a waste of time. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then is there to being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. The very words of God. When we gather together once a week, we look at the scriptures. We, We look as a church at the words of God. And God blesses his word. The truth is, God does not bless nations or cultures. God does not even necessarily bless people. God blesses his word. When you and I obey the word of God, we live under the authority of God's word. And when we do that, we position ourselves to be blessed. When we live outside of the authority of God's word, when we move out from under the authority of God's word, and we live in disobedience, we remove ourselves from the blessable position. Blessing does not follow you. Blessing follows obedience. And we know that. As parents, if if your kids are trying to do something good, 
you want to help them. But if your kids are trying to do something that you know is not good, not helpful, will potentially harm them, will not have good results, you don't want to help them. We understand that. And God is a Father who blesses and who helps those who obey and also withholds blessings from those who don't. And you might say, well, man, there are areas that I don't obey the Word of God. I don't live under the authority of the Word of God, and, and I've been blessed not like you could have been. When you and I obey the Word of God, it elevates our lives. And here's the amazing thing. If you're here today and you're not a Christ follower, maybe you're a guest. We want you to know you're welcome at C3, and we're thrilled that you're here. But, but you might say, man, I, I'm not a Christ follower. Here's the good news. Even if you're not a Christ follower, you can be blessed when you obey the Word of God. Whether you know Jesus or not, don't murder is helpful information. Don't have a bunch of kids outside of marriage with a bunch of different people is helpful information. There are things that the Word of God teaches us. Don't don't take stuff that's not yours. Whether you're a Christ follower or not, that is helpful information. It's going to make your life better if you abide by that. It's interesting, this organization, Back to the Bible, did a study of over 400,000 people, and they discovered what they called the power of four effect. Those who said they read the Bible three days a week, at least three days a week or less, had very little change in their lives. But those who read their Bible at least four days a week or more said they experienced significant changes When the Word of God is brought into the majority of your week, your week begins to improve and change. Our emotions improve. They found their depression decreased. Their anxiety lessened. They became less addicted, less self-destructive, and experienced significant increases in hopefulness. Think about the last part of verse 2. Entrusted with the very words of God. Now, you have to decide what you believe about the Word of God, and there are really only three options. The first option, what I believe, what we believe as a church, is that the Bible is in fact the Word of God, the very breath of God. It is the living Word of God, and it has no mixture of error. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is active and living and has the ability to reflect and reveal to us exactly who we are. That's what we believe about the Bible. So one option And you have to decide for yourself, do I believe the Bible is the Word of God? I do. C3 does. Another option is the Word of God is, it's about God, but it's from people. It it contains some good teachings, and there there are some moral lessons that we can learn maybe and apply, and some good examples, but it's not actually the Word of God. And then the third option is a mixture of the first two. Well, some of it's from God, and some of it's from people. And there are things that I do believe are the Word of God in the Bible, and there are things that, well, I don't think so. I think that was just a human perspective, and based on the times, that's what the the human thought that was writing it. The problem with the third option is, it's interesting what we decide is the Word of God. We read in the Bible, oh, God loves you. Yeah, that's the Word of God, because that feels good, and I like that, and man, I I, want to embrace that. Yeah, that must have been from God. We read stuff about how we're supposed to be kind to unkind people. That's optional. I'm not sure that's from God because difficult people, I don't think they deserve that. And we tend to pick and choose what we like and say that's the Word of God. And what we don't, oh, that was just the human author. That was just, that was just their perspective. And the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate in this text through the Apostle Paul that the Word of God is the Word of God. 
And the more I obey and live consistently with the teachings of the Bible, the more I set myself up to live in God's blessings. The diagnosis is you and I have a problem called sin. I am the problem. And the first pushback is church is a waste of time. The second pushback in Romans 3 is too many Christ followers are hypocrites. Notice verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being be a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Are there Christ followers who are hypocrites, who are unfaithful to God? Absolutely. But if people are unfaithful, it doesn't mean that God's unfaithful. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. And so whether you're a Christ follower or not, God is faithful to his word. He's going to bless you or judge you based on his word. The great physician has given us this this diagnosis. And we're, we're reeling from the information, I'm a sinner, I'm the problem, I can't blame others, the biggest problem I have in life is the person that I see in the mirror. And so we're, we're processing that diagnosis, and as Paul moves into chapter 3, he, he's putting up these objections that we might have. Church is a waste of time. There are too many hypocrites. The third, a loving God would never punish people. A loving God wouldn't punish people. Notice verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Now, we have no problem with God judging the world. In fact, we are fans often of God judging the world to the point that that if he doesn't do it soon enough or the way that we think he should, we jump in and try to help him. We jump onto our social media throne, and we pronounce guilty on a regular basis. Our culture's filled with constant judgment. In these first few verses of Romans chapter 3, Paul is, in a sense, recapping the, the spiritual, physical exam that we got in the first two chapters. He's, he's hitting the highlights. He's, he's summarizing it. We talked about judging other people and how when you do that, you bring judgment on yourself. And he's saying here, hey, our, our culture's filled with judgment. We sling judgment in every direction except toward ourselves. We throw down on everyone else's sin while ignoring our own. We have no problem with judgment as long as it's for everybody else. And like it or not, it is, a, it is an uncomfortable thought, but God will judge everyone. Not one person will escape the judgment of God. We're all going to stand before God as Christ followers will be judged according to our works, what we did with the gospel and what we did once we became a follower of Jesus, what we did to advance his kingdom. That's as a Christ follower. As someone who doesn't know Jesus, if you don't know Christ, lost the judgment is a place called hell. And the reality is in life we have two options, that's it, Jesus or hell, according to the word of God and according to what Jesus had to teach. Jesus took the death we deserved, and he offers us the life that we don't. Jesus took your place on the cross. He was judged for your sins. He paid your price. He endured the wrath of God so that you could be loved by God. And if you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, he's judged for your sins. You're not. He's condemned. You're not. He dies. You live. 
And if you say no to Jesus, or you hesitate, I've heard people say, I'm just not sure I'm ready. Not now, I need to think about it. Or you delay. A hesitation or a delay or a not now is a no. Everything's a no until you say yes. And you are judged for your sins and condemned, and you'll experience eternal death. This is why we celebrate in the life of C3 when people give their lives to Jesus. It is the single most, the single most important decision that is life-changing and eternity-changing that you could ever make in your entire life. You don't have to be judged for your sin. You don't have to experience the wrath of God in hell. You can know the love of God and experience life in Him. You know, over the years, one of the things I do as a pastor is often I get a front row seat to the end of people's lives. Those last few days, and over the years, I've heard a lot of people express regret. I've heard a lot of people talk about things they wish they could go back and change, but now they can't. But as I think about that, I've talked to a lot of people that have regretted a lot of decisions they've made. I've never met one person, not one, who regretted giving their life to Jesus and experiencing his salvation and forgiveness and grace and mercy. I've never met the person that said, you know, my sins were forgiven, my burdens were lifted, my conscience was clear, my life was fulfilled, my purpose was realized, my relationships were enhanced. It was the worst decision I ever made. I've never met that person. I've never heard that. He's given us this diagnosis, and he's rolling through the objections we might have. Church is a waste of time. There are too many Christ followers that are hypocrites. A loving God wouldn't punish people. And then the final objection, if God's going to work it all out, I'm good. I mean, who cares? God's going God's to work it all out. Verse 7, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. The condemnation is just. It's the old philosophy of the ends justify the means. It doesn't really matter what I do. God's going to take care of it all, so who cares? If I hurt someone, God can help them forgive, and they'll learn forgiveness, so we're good. This is the man who fathers kids and then has nothing to do with them, but the kids turn out great. And the father thinks, it all worked out. Man, if, if I hadn't messed up, if I hadn't done what I did, the, the, they wouldn't even be here. So apparently it all worked out. The diagnosis is you and I have a sin problem. And we need a solution to that problem, but we can't solve it ourselves. And so often in life, there's a rhythm in our lives of, of pushing back on the diagnosis, of, of rationalizing why this is okay and that's okay and this is not that bad and that's not that bad. If I had a water bottle up here with amazing water, refreshing water, and I put just one small drop of poison into that water, it contaminates the whole bottle. It's not mostly good. It's not 99% okay. Just one drop makes the whole bottle poisonous, just like only one sin makes us imperfect and unholy. And that's just the reality of who we are. And the great physician has heard our rationalization. He's heard our objections and he's dealt with him. And now he's going to show us our chart. Not our medical chart, but our spiritual chart. Here's what's happening in your life. Notice how your sin is impacting every area of your existence. And he starts, he starts with our nature in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? 
do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. See, you and I are sinners, not because of what we do, but because of who we are. It's our nature. So I can't just make some improvements here and there and and change my behavior. I don't need a better nature. I need a new nature. I I need God to fundamentally change me at the level of being. And, And think about it. We're born with this sinful nature. You don't have to teach little children to lie. You don't have to teach little children uh, to steal. They do that naturally. What you do have to teach little children is, is to share because they, like us, in their nature, are intensely selfish. One of the first words is mine. That's who we are. It's in our nature. And then he goes to our minds. There is no one who understands. See, we're proud of the knowledge that we've attained, but ignore the wisdom we lack. We even use our minds, the minds God created in us, to argue with God rather than submit to God and obey God. Even our minds are infected by this sin. And then he moves to our motives. There is no one who seeks God. And you might say, wait, I I seek God. Really? I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, we're in church. Let, let's be honest. Do you truly seek God or do you seek his blessings? It's not that we want God. It's often that we want what he will do for us or what we hope he will do for us. We seek the gifts of God rather than seeking God. Think about just the content and the tone so often of our prayers. God, please heal me. Please give me that job. Please help me get that bonus. Please fix my spouse. Please help me with my kids. When it comes to our motives, we want a God who will answer our prayers and and provide our needs, but we don't want a God who's going to tell us how to live. And then he moves to our will. He's showing us how this sin has affected and infected every area of our lives In the next part of the passage, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. God has a way, but we've chosen different ways. We've chosen our own way. And our will chooses not to obey God, but to disobey God. And so Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, is helping us realize we don't need to improve. We don't need to do better. We need to be made new. I need a new nature. I need a new mind. I need new motives. I need a new will. And all of these things together, next, he, he moves on the chart. He's showing us our spiritual chart. He moves to our deeds. There is no one who does good, not even one. Does that offend you? Do, do you bristle a little bit and think, well, I, I do good? No. No one does good. Don't believe the lies you've been told since you were young. You're a good person. You have a a good heart. Do you know what the Bible says about the heart? We don't even know our own heart. It's deceitful and wicked. But but wait a minute. I've done some good things. According to who? 
People may admire you because they see the outward, but God looks at the heart. And often the good things we do have bad motives, selfish motives. And God sees what's behind what we do, not just what we do. Oh, I did a good thing. Yeah, and, and you were hoping, there was a part of you that was hoping everybody would recognize and notice. Oh, I helped someone, and, and there's a part of you that feels better about yourself because you did something rec- rather than recognizing that God did something through you. If there's anything in my motives behind what I'm doing that's even good, if there's anything apart from honoring God and bringing glory to God, it's not a good thing. You did a good thing, but the, but the, the, the motives weren't good. The deeds weren't actually good from, from our motives. And then he moves to our words. Notice the next part of the passage. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Strong language. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Our words. So often, our words have the stench of death. He's talking about how we talk to each other. And how we talk to each other has drastically deteriorated, especially in the last year. It's never been perfect, but we're accelerating in our descent from decency and kindness. And technology has given us the opportunity to communicate like never before, but more often than not, we're communicating death, not life. We tell everyone who we hate, who we should cancel, who we should shut down, who we should shame, who we should judge, who we should condemn. And notice the last part of that verse. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. He he says our words are like poison and they destroy people. Do your words, the ones you say about people that you don't like, bring life or death? Because remember, every person, every single person that you don't like, God loves. And our words often have the fragrance of death that's within us rather than the life Jesus wants to offer others through us. Then he moves to our bodies in the next part of the passage. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Historian Will Durant said out of 3,241 years of recorded human history, only 268 of those years have had no war. Only 268 out of 3,241 were the years where people were not killing people. And we brag about how advanced we are and how civilized we've become and how elite we are. We haven't advanced at all. We still barbarically shed blood every day. We don't do it in coliseums with crowds chanting as lions devour people. We do it in clinics with crowds supporting as doctors devour. The leading cause of death in America is abortion. And the murder of babies is not only legally allowed, but spiritually ignored. While all the time living in a culture that is screaming for justice for every group under the sun except the most innocent human lives. We don't care about justice as much as we care about convenience and preference and our agendas. Now let me say this. If you're here this morning, and you've had an abortion, please hear me clearly. I want you to know that you are loved. You are not less than anyone else. 
My purpose in what I've stated is not to try to shame you or make you feel guilty. There's a God who forgives your sin just like he forgives my sin. Remember, Paul has laid out very clearly, none of us are better than anyone else. We are all sinners. But the truth of Scripture is, there are a lot of things that we ignore in life because it's convenient for us to ignore. The truth of Scripture also is, you are deeply loved. And whatever's happened in your life and how you look back on it, you need to know you are loved by God. And He offers His grace, His forgiveness, and His love to you. And as the church, as the church, we have failed people in difficult circumstances, having to make difficult decisions. See, it's not enough for us to say, hey, this is wrong. We need to be a part of helping people do what honors God. We need to be a part of helping teenage unwed mothers. We need to be a part of helping people that are having difficulties financial, financially. We need to be a part of helping single moms. And in the life of C3, we do that. But understand me clearly, if you've walked through that difficult pain, you're loved and we're thrilled you're a part of C3. All of us, all of us, every person in this room, we don't need to be better. We don't need to do better. We need to be made new. Then he moves to our emotions. Notice the next verse. Ruin and misery mark their ways. Because we're ruined inwardly, we bring misery outwardly. Instead of being a blessing to people, we often create burdens for people. Often we harm people more than we help people. We're a train wreck emotionally. We don't need to improve our emotions. We need to be healed through being made new in our emotions. As we continue to look at the chart, the exam has been taken in the first two chapters. The diagnosis is clear. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. We all have a problem when we are the problem. He's rolling through the chart, and now he looks at our souls. And the way of peace, they do not know. You can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God. And you cannot bring others the peace of God until you have peace with God with God. And you only find peace with God through a relationship with Jesus. God says, I've given you a checkup from head to toe, a complete spiritual, physical. I've I've run all the tests. I've looked deep inside your life. And here's what I found. All of a human person, every ounce is affected and infected by sin. We see sin so clearly in others. So the Holy Spirit is leading us through this text to take an inventory of our own lives. This is not about who else needs to hear this or who else might need to pay attention or what you might want to send somebody out. This is for you and for me. Remember the Word of God. It's not binoculars. It's a mirror. And then he moves to verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. See, the Holy Spirit is revealing through Paul. The Word of God shows us how bad we are and how good God is. And you and I will never appreciate how good God is 
until we are confronted with the reality and accept the reality of how bad we are. We spend our lives trying to convince ourselves that we're not that bad. Oh, let me help you this morning. We're that bad. We are messed up and we are broken. But compared to so, stop comparing yourself to other people. Compare yourself to Jesus. That's the standard. We are messed up and broken. And once we're in that place where we recognize that and then realize God loved us anyway, God sent Jesus anyway, we realize in a deeper way how good God is. So you and I now have our spiritual diagnosis. The reality of who we are has been revealed and the reality of who God is is offered. I'm the problem. You're the problem. It's me. It's you. It's it's who we are. And it starts in the very essence of our being, my nature, and it invades every area of our lives. And that nature is sinful. And I can't fix it. And you can't fix it. We don't have the solution, but God does. Jesus is the solution. See, our our condition is both terminal and curable. And it's not supposed to be the same. That's impossible, but with God it's possible. Our condition is terminal and curable. Jesus put himself on the cross in my place, and he offers to put me in his place. So today, today, would you like to receive the one who took your judgment and punishment so you wouldn't have to? He took the wrath of God, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he starts to talk about it, poured out on Jesus on the cross so that you could take his righteousness and connect with the Father. The only other option, if you deny the gift that God is offering, where Jesus took your wrath on the cross, if if you deny to receive him as your Savior, the only other option is for you to experience the wrath of God poured out for you through all of eternity. I can't think of a single reason to wait any longer. Today is your day. God's been clear, your condition is terminal, but it is curable only through Jesus. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for your word. I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and continue to speak to our hearts and and draw us. And I pray for those in this room that aren't certain of their relationship with you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, hey, what we've just looked at in the Word of God, I want to encourage you, if you're not certain that you've given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that today. I want to pray a very simple prayer. And I I want to lead you in this prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of your heart. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you'd like to commit your life to Christ today, if you'd like to begin a brand new, personal, intimate relationship with the living God and have your sins forgiven, you pray this prayer. Dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life, forgive my sin, and help me to live for you. As best I know how, I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name.